Wow, look at everyone here tonight. This is a good turnout. I'm really pumped by this. You guys came out. Your message is about doctrine. I'm really, this makes my heart happy. Yeah. All right. Let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to get into this. It's a new kind of thing that we're doing. I'm really glad that you showed up for this. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we give you praise, and we ask that you would help us to uh, think about your truth. We ask that this would be something that doesn't just fill our, our heads with head knowledge. I do, I do ask that it would prepare people uh, to understand what we believe, to be able to discuss it, be able to think about it, know where it's taught in Scripture. But we ask that ultimately that this would be truth that would go from our head to our heart, that it would result in praise to you, that it would result in changed lives, that your truth um, matters, and it makes a difference what we believe. We thank you for your word and that it is our ultimate and highest authority because it is you speaking to us. And no matter what we say, um, no matter what I say from this pulpit, no matter what we have printed in a doctrinal statement, it is only as good as it matches your word because your word is authority and your word is life. So be with us tonight. We give you praise. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. (coughs) All right. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, we're starting tonight. We have a uh, new series that we're doing. It's what we believe. We're going to be in this series uh, for a while as we look at uh, various topics of theology going through our church's doctrinal statement. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Nick for putting together this booklet. I hope that it is a good resource for you. You can decide how you want to use this. Uh, We have it set up so that it has the different sections of the doctrinal statement, place for notes. If you want to take notes there or if you want to uh, take in the bulletin or both, whatever you want to do, that's up to you as far as how you learn. And then it has the biblical passages that go along with that. And what we did is we just uh, took this as it is uh, currently. And uh, there are some doctrines that have lots and lots of scripture passages uh, written. And therefore, uh, Pastor Nick had to use very small fonts to fit them all on one page. And we're going to go through and we're going to look at uh, each of these one per week. That means that there's going to be, we're going to have to stick to the main points. There's going to be a, a lot that we do not have time to deal with, as tempting as it would be, any one of these we could easily make into a 12-part series. But then it becomes, uh, it would become a different thing. We want something that's an overview of these different beliefs, so we're going to try and hit some of the most important things. And part of our promise to you, we want this to be useful to you, whether you have been a part of this church for a long time and you want a refresher on basic theology and what we believe, or if you are a new Christian, we hope that this will be a helpful thing. If you are newer to the church and you're wanting to find out what is FBC all about, what do we really hold to, we want this to be a helpful thing, we are going to record these. And eventually to have these all on a MP3 CDs that we could have for new members and as, a, as a teaching resource. So we're hope, hopeful that it will be useful in that way as well. So we want this to be pretty down to earth. Um, we want to answer a few questions. We're going to talk about, for each of these statements, what does it mean? Where does the Bible teach this? Who might believe something different than this? And how does this matter for my life? And just as a matter of disclaimer here, well, just uh, to preface this, our doctrinal statement is based on the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Over the years, it's been modified many times. It's hard to track when all of those has occurred. Uh, but um, we now have, we, last year we added a little bit to the uh, creation Uh, section. We talked about human life. We talked about marriage. uh, Some of those issues. And some of this has been written for a long time. And we acknowledge that this statement is not itself scripture. It's only as good as it matches up to scripture. But there's been a lot of wisdom put into this throughout the ages. And so we feel it's something that is a very helpful teaching tool as we go through these uh, basic, um, basic beliefs. 
I think it's important to point out too that there's different levels, different things, levels of disagreement and unity that people that call themselves Christians may have. There are certain things that are in here that everyone that calls themselves a Christian is going to agree with. That this would set us apart from basically, unless you're in a cult or a non-Christian religion, things that we would all agree on and very important things. There's other things where all basically Protestants would agree and we may have differences uh, with Roman Catholics. There are other things that would be differences between uh, maybe us as Baptists and maybe other brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of a different denomination. Some of this, too, is a matter of a difference between more conservative churches, which we are a more conservative church, and churches that are, that are more liberal. And so when we think of these, we need to, I think it's important to remind ourselves that not every distinction in theology is of the same level of importance. Okay, there are some things that are kind of first-tier levels of importance, where if you don't believe this, you're, you're not saved yet. Certain things as far as the gospel and who God is that are just important and crucial to being saved. There are other things that we, you could disagree on and still be saved, but it would make it awful difficult to be part of the same local church. And then there are other things that we could have disagreement about even within one church and still have good fellowship with each other. So I just say that because sometimes, if we don't distinguish that, it can come across like every single thing that is different is uh, something that makes us uh, you know, completely, uh, let me say this in a better way. Sometimes, uh, I don't know how you grew up, uh, but sometimes it was hard to, for me growing up, hard to distinguish as, as a younger person between which are the, the big deal, the most important things, and which are the smaller things that may have importance but may not be the same level of importance as far as something that saves or doesn't save or that would separate uh, Christians within a church. So it's just important to realize that. Anyways, let's jump into the first one here. And it is no coincidence that this article on the scriptures is number one because we're going to see how foundational this is to everything else. So what we'll do is we'll read this together and... Excuse me, I'm gonna <clears throat> excuse me. I'm gonna draw out a few points to try and explain this. Okay, so Article One, the scriptures, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men controlled by the Holy Spirit, and that it has truth without any admixture of errors for its matter, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the age the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man, the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Now, next to that, there's some um, explanatory notes that are also part of the doctrinal statement. By the Holy Bible, we mean that collection of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, which, as originally written, does not merely contain and convey the word of God, but is the very word of God. And by inspiration, we mean that the books of the Bible were written by holy men of old as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in such a definite way that their writings were supernaturally inspired and free from error, as no other writings have been or ever will be inspired. All right, so let's dig into this. And I have basically uh, four points that I'm going to try to to get to to kind of unpack some of the uh, statement here. And the first that we're going to look at is that the scriptures were written by men controlled by the Holy Spirit, and thus the Bible is the Word of God. And this, put another way, is the doctrine of inspiration. So I want to read two of the passages of Scripture that are on the, the Scripture page. And there's lots of Scripture here. And I hope that you'll take time to read through this. We're not going to read this all 
out loud, but I want to look at two of the most key passages that are here. And the first one is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. This one and the next one in 2 Peter are are the two most important. If we get these right, so much else is going to flow from this. And the rest of these passages is just supporting material that reaffirms some of the truth that's in here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we see there a few things. We see this is supporting the fact that this is talking about all Scripture. That when we, when we dig into this, we're going to see we're not just saying that some Scripture or certain parts of the Bible, but everything that is, uh, that is genuine Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, sometimes we hear the word inspiration. There are other translations that there would say all Scripture is inspired. Because that's what inspired means. It means breathed out by God. That um, when we talk, there is breath that comes out of our mouth. And so what this is saying is that Scripture is, is basically coming from God's mouth. It is when we speak, the words of us come out, and when God inspired Scripture. It was His Word that was coming out. So that Scripture, what was written down in this book, this is the Word of God. Because it was inspired by Him. Now notice, it's not specifically the the prophets and the apostles, the writers of Scripture that were inspired. They, they, God worked through them. But it's specifically saying that it is the words of Scripture itself that are inspired. So it's not just that God gave these authors some good ideas and then left them on their own to write it down the best that they could, but that God worked through and made sure that the very words that he wanted to be written down actually were written down in Scripture. And that verse also says that it's, it's profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What we should think the things we should not think, how we should live, how we should not live. It's for all of life. And then we'll come back to later on when it says complete and equipped for every good work. Second Peter 1, 19-21 is also a key passage. Look at this. It says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And this is a key part. This would be, if you want to underline, underline this part. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the phrase of this is carried along. In some translations, it might be uh, born along. And it's this imagery that can also be used of a, if you had a sailboat and the wind is blowing the boat and carrying it along to where it's supposed to go. So this is saying that God did work through these human authors of Scripture to, to push them and to guide them so that they would write down what they were supposed to write down. So God worked through the authors. He carried them along. And God also inspired the actual words of Scripture so that exactly what he wanted written down was written down. Let me talk about a few things as far as some, some terminology that I think might be helpful. This means that we believe in what is called dual authorship of Scripture. That the Scriptures are fully divine and they're also fully human. And what this means is that... This is, if I ask you, is this the, the word of God or is this the word of, of man? There's a sense where you could say yes to both of these. Because we don't believe that this book just dropped from heaven. We don't believe that when the authors of scripture wrote this, they wanted some kind of zombie trance. And they, they blacked out and had a pen in their hand. And when they woke up, they had written this manuscript. And well, where did this come from? No, God worked through them and he used 
He used their personalities. He used the, the knowledge that they had. Of course, he added to that. He gave them revelation. And remember, God is, is working through them. Um, our statement says controlling them. But it's not controlling in a sense like, you know, some kind of zombie writing type of way. It's he's guiding them. He's working through them. He's using their, their knowledge, their personalities. That's why when you read, if, if you spend enough time in Scripture, you can tell that John has a certain personality in what he writes. Paul has a certain personality. Luke and Mark, they, they have slightly differences in the way they say things. James. But it's all of God as the ultimate author working through these human authors. But God does it in such a way that they end up writing exactly what God wants to be said in Scripture. So, that's what we mean when we say dual authorship. There's some other points here that we can get at, and it would kind of dis- differentiate us from uh, some other beliefs. And one is that we believe that all the words in Scripture are inspired, and not just some of them. So, there's maybe some people that would like to pick and choose. Maybe some people like the New Testament, but the Old Testament, they don't like that as much. Or there's some parts where they think, well, this is, this is a loving passage and this is an embarrassing one. Sometimes people seem to think that, well, the red passages that Jesus said, those are the inspired ones, but the kind of the black, you know, those, that's not um, quite as inspired. No, we believe that throughout all of this, that all of Scripture, this is God's Word, that all of the words are inspired, not just some of them. There's not some you know, secret, uh, official part of Scripture within, within the Bible. So all of Scripture, and we also believe that all of the words are inspired, not just the ideas. If you, if you want to know the bigger term, sometimes you might see this. Somebody says uh, the term verbal plenary inspiration. Now, I say that in case you run across that. And that basically just means what I have on the screen right now. That verbal means it's the words, not just the ideas. And plenary, if you go to a conference and there's a plenary session, that's one where everyone goes to it. So it's all the words, not just, not just some of them. So we believe that all scripture is genuinely inspired by God. This also means that we believe that the Bible does not just contain the Word of God, but it actually is the Word of God. Okay? Also, the Bible doesn't, it doesn't just convey the Word of God. Like, if you read this, the Word of God might come to you through it. No, this actually is the Word of God written down. And that by reading this, we can know what God has to say to us. That it is, is recorded in an objective way in Scripture. So this would distinguish us um, from, from non-Christians who don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, it would distinguish us from, from skeptics or liberals that would view this as just a human book or some that are more liberal than us that may have kind of a softer view of inspiration that, well, maybe some parts of this are inspired and other parts not so much. No, we believe the whole thing. That the whole thing is inspired by God. And this means that, for us, we believe that to disbelieve Scripture is to disbelieve God. That we owe the same respect and belief to Scripture as we would owe to, to Jesus Christ if, if he came and returned and told us truth right here. Because this is his word. And he, Jesus Christ himself, authorized this book from beginning to end to speak to us. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And if you want to hear from God, you have a way that you can do this without having to worry about, are you just imagining things? If you want to hear from God, read this book. And this is God's message to each of us and to you as well. Second point from the doctrinal statement that I want to draw out is that we hold that Scripture is without error. And sometimes this is called the doctrine of inerrancy. That scripture does not have any genuine errors in it. Now, you might be thinking, well, uh, Pastor Nate, didn't you just say that scripture is both uh, fully divine, but it's also fully human? 
And as we know, to error is human, and therefore, if the Scripture is a human book, it must have errors in it. I mean, I have, I have books in my office, okay, by theologians at big impressive schools that argue that. That because it's a human book, that there's some, obviously the humanity has contaminated Scripture and there must be errors in it. Maybe not big ones, but maybe, you know, little errors or different things. But I believe, we believe as a church, and I, and I hope you believe, that that's not the case for Scripture. I think actually Jesus Christ is, if you think about what Jesus Christ is like, that's a good way to think of what Scripture is like too. Because Jesus Christ is both, once he came down and became incarnate, he's fully God, correct? And he's also fully human. But did Jesus ever sin? No, he did not. So I think, the way you can think of it is that in the same way that Jesus is fully divine and fully human without sin, we believe that the scriptures are fully divine and fully human, but without errors. But without any mistake in what it is genuinely trying to teach us. As we saw, <clears throat> the fact that it's God speaking has preserved this from error. God directing these human authors. He kept them from, from making mistakes or teaching things that are, are not true. We saw in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. <clears throat> so I believe it would be wrong-headed to try and carve it up and it, as if some parts are inspired and some parts are not. And Jesus taught that even the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen were all God's unchanging word. That's from Matthew 5.18. We also see there's places in scripture, and you can look this up sometime, John 10.24-35, Galatians 3.16, in one of those is Jesus, the other is Paul. They're making theological arguments that depend on specific words of Scripture. And in these instances, um, so you see that this inerrancy goes down to the very words, and Jesus also declares Scripture cannot be broken. I want to give a second point, sub-point about this. When we talk about inerrancy, that Scripture being without error that this is not limited to merely the spiritual themes. There are some churches that would claim this, that, well, the Bible is infallible, or there's, it's, it's true on some spiritual things. It can lead you to Christ. But there might be other matters where it's, it might make mistakes. You know, maybe some of the more historical or scientific things that uh, you can't trust it there, but at least it can lead you to Jesus Christ. I'm going to say no, that I believe inerrancy is not limited to just spiritual things. It's everything that the Bible intends to teach us is without genuine error. Now you have to look at what is the Bible intending to teach. You have to interpret it in the right way, interpret it well. And I think we also have to notice what, it, what does it really mean as far as a genuine error? Because there are skeptics that will try and look at Scripture and point out things and say, well, this is an error. But is that really the standard that the Scripture is holding itself to? I mean, what, let me explain that a little bit more. Back in 1978, a group of conservative Christians from uh, across America got together in Chicago. Uh, people like R.C. Sproul and... Uh, James Boyce, and all these, a lot of really conservative Christians. And they drafted what's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it's a good document. If you want to look up something challenging, just type that up. And um, it's very clear and defining what inerrancy really means and what it doesn't mean. And I want to go through just some, a few clarifications on this because I think this helps us to realize what it's talking about when we talk about a genuine error and what we don't necessarily mean. So let me give you just a few statements here. One thing that they pointed out is that God still uses, he used the personalities and writing styles of the writers that he had chosen and prepared. So inerrancy, again, it doesn't mean that it's some kind of zombie writing, 
Um, he still worked through them and he used their personalities, their experiences. And through that, God caused these writers to use the very words that he chose <coughs> without overriding their personalities. Also, inerrancy, strictly speaking, applies only to the original writings of Scripture, the original manuscripts. Sometimes these are called the autographs. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that every copy of Scripture is going to be preserved from error. Okay, so if you sit down and you decide to copy out uh, the book of uh, Galatians, okay, and you start writing it, you, if you're not careful, you may make a mistake. Okay? So it doesn't mean that God magically makes it so you, you can't accidentally make a mistake, but it does mean that the original writings uh, were free from error. It doesn't mean that all the translations are perfect. Some may be better than others. We have very many very, very good translations, and we can be very thankful for that. Um, but copies and translations, they are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. And this would be a message for a different time, but the great thing is there are so many ancient manuscripts that we have, and they can compare these and look at them, that we have such a, that there's no way that there could have been some conspiracy where they changed scripture or took out parts or added things. We know that the copies that we have are amazingly accurate to what was originally written. So, inerrancy is also, we said it's not merely limited to spiritual things. Uh, it does also um, hit on history and science. Everything that the Bible intends to teach is without error. Now, several things that should not be regarded as genuine errors, uh, I think this is important to realize too. Some of the things that really aren't genuine errors would be a lack of modern technical precision. Okay? There might be some things, let's say, the way that we classify, you know, animals. Or the way that we use you know, different, you know, if you were working in a factory and you were doing measurements uh, to make some highly precise, uh, you know, machine part, you know, you might have measurements down to, um, you know, the, just the, the, the micrometer. Uh, but scripture might use more rounded terms at some t- point. And that would be considered, um, we shouldn't hold it to a standard that it didn't intend to hold to today. It might not fit our exact classifications. Also, irregularities in grammar or spelling, that's not counted as a genuine error. Now, most of, sometimes in the original manuscripts, there, there might be something that's spelled one way or another, and if some skeptic says, well, that's an error, well, it's not. They know what it meant, and um, we are used to, you know, words being very fixed because we have printed dictionaries, uh, but that wasn't like how it was in the ancient world, and sometimes there might be a name that is spelled a little bit different one way or, or another. Also, in Scripture, sometimes if there is an observational description of nature, for example, it talks about the sunrise. Okay, that's not an error if they say the sunrise. We know what that means. That's a common way of speaking. If you read your newspaper and it talked about the sunrise, you would not flip out and say, I can't believe this newspaper is an error because it says the sunrise when we know that the sun doesn't rise. Instead, the earth uh, spins and rotates around the sun. We Okay, we, we get it. It's, it's based on how it just observationally it appears to us. It's a common way of speaking. So I say this again because there's some people that would want to hold the Bible to just come some kind of foreign standard to try and nitpick and say that they're errors when these are not really errors. So, for example, the Bible can report a falsehood. That doesn't make it an error. Okay? There's things that the Bible says that if you took just those phrases, it's wrong. For example, something that Satan says. Okay, so it's an accurate uh, record of Satan saying a lie, but that doesn't mean that the Bible is in error. You just have to read it in context and realize that it's accurately recording a lie that Satan said. There are 
other things that are not genuine errors, there's use of hyperbole. And so much of this we, we naturally would get if we read the Scripture plainly like we would read a newspaper, that you can tell when there's a figure of speech sometimes that's used. At the end of John's Gospel, he says, and these things are recorded that you may believe, and there's so many th- other things that are recorded, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, that even if they, were to, if they were to all be written down, the whole world would not have room for them. Now, we get what he's saying. Does it really mean that if you filled up you know, every you know, paper on every, you know, every continent that we could not write all these things down? No, we know what he means is that there's lots and lots and lots and lots of other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in Scripture. Round numbers, those are not errors. Um, you know, if it says in a battle that there was you know, 30,000 people killed, okay, and it turns out that there was you know, 30,041, that's not an error, because we, we, re- we would recognize, that's how we would speak as well, that it's a rounded figure and we get that. It can be um, accurate even if it's not exactly precise. So these are just a few of these examples. Sometimes, like in Luke, we'll see there might be material that gets moved around a little bit because it's arranging things topically rather than strictly chronologically. So with all of these things in mind, sometimes when they cite the Old Testament, they'll paraphrase a little bit. Um, so I think it's just good to realize that when you realize that the Bible speaks in the common language of observation, the vast majority of what people claim are errors just kind of disappear. And when people claim that there are their errors, of course, the first thing you want to do is say, what, what are you talking about? Because it's one thing to just say, well, we know the Bible's full of errors. Let's look at this, and let's try and see, what are you talking about? And could there be good explanations for these? And I haven't seen anything that makes me doubt that the Bible is without error. And Jesus viewed scriptures as being the authoritative and unerring word of God, and if he's God, and if his high view of Scripture is correct, then we should believe the same thing. So this distinguishes us from those that would believe that the Bible contains errors. Um, there are some people that would say, well, like I said, the Bible is uh, infallible, but not inerrant. It's not totally perfect. No, we believe that everything that it genuinely intends to teach, it is correct on. And this really matters. Um, Francis Schaeffer, he was a writer from a few genera- from a few decades ago, but he predicted that the issue of inerrancy would be the watershed issue for evangelicals. And what he meant by that, he uses this great illustration. He he lived in the Alps, and he said that there's the watershed is um, kind of the continental divide, and he said that there's a place in in the Alps where he was that if a raindrop fell, and it landed on one side of this watershed, this, this, this one side of the mountain, it would run down that mountain into one river and into another river, and it would eventually end up in the Mediterranean, the warm waters of the Mediterranean. And if it fell a few inches over to the other side, it would head down the other side of the mountain into a different river, into another one, and would eventually end up in the cold waters of the, the North Sea. And what he meant to say by that is that what may look like a small difference at the beginning, after a while ends up being a huge difference. I believe it really does. That this issue of do we really believe that the Bible is without error? Or could there be some small ones in there? At first it might seem like it's not that big a deal. But as we, I think we we see this in the church now as some churches and denominations are looking at different social issues and things that people used to say in the past, this is clearly against God's will. Now it's a little bit easier for them to say, well, you know, maybe that's part of Scripture that Paul got this wrong or that Scripture was kind of out of date. At first it seemed like it was just a few inches difference, but eventually it's difference from two different seas. Another point, the 66 books of Scripture are our only complete and final revelation from God to man. We see this written in the doctrinal statement as well. It says, therefore, 
Scripture is, and shall remain to the end of the age the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man. So this is really the doctrine of sufficiency. That what we have in here in Scripture is enough. This is exactly what we need. No more, no less than what God intended for humanity for this age, for the church age, until he comes again. In 2 Timothy 3.17, we already read it, and it said that all Scripture, it talked about this, and it said it is complete, able to make us complete, equipped for every good work. There's nothing else that we need beyond this. There's no additional revelation that we need to have from God. Just remember, God is omniscient. God knows everything. And so he knew the future, and when he was inspiring the authors to write this down, he knew the needs that people in West Michigan would need in the year 2017 in order to, to know God, to love him, and to live out a life in obedience to him. So the basics of what we need, it's all in here, because God was able to look ahead, he knew what we needed, and he made sure that Everything was in here. So we don't need to be looking for additional information. This would distinguish us from um, many others. It would distinguish us from, well, for example, from the Mormons, who would say that they believe in the Bible, but they also believe in the Book of Mormon and a few other uh, scriptural books that they would add to this. In fact, there's a lot of, um, of cults that one of the key things of these cults is they would they add to scripture, whether it's uh, you know Christian Science or whatever. That they may say, well, we believe in scripture, but we believe in this and something else. I think this would also distinguish us from people or Christians that really want to have continuing revelation, like more messages from God, more knowledge from Him. They're looking for secret wisdom, hidden things, maybe additional revelation or prophecy. One of the things, too, that this statement in our church's doctrinal statement, it specifically lists 66 books of Scripture. And this is something that would distinguish us here from Roman Catholics. There's actually quite a bit that's written so far that, um, to, to many Catholics, we would agree with as far as Scripture being the Word of God, and at least with conservative Catholics. But one of the things, at least so far, that would be a difference here would be the number of books in Scripture. And so when we talk about this, uh, this is the issue of what's called the, <clears throat> the canon of Scripture. And this is, when we talk about this, it's canon with one N. Canon with two Ns is a giant gun that shoots cannonballs. Okay? Canon with one N, the word uh, literally means rule, and basically it is the official list of the books that should be in Scripture. Okay, it's the list of divinely inspired books that should be in the Bible. And one key thing is that the early Christians, they did not create the canon, they did not create this list, they recognized this list. Because God is the one, if he is the one that authored scripture, he's the one that determined, he knows which books he inspired and intended to be in scripture. And so it was up to the early Christians to, to recognize this and to see which ones um, just had that ring of authenticity. and They had that apostolic uh, connection. They were from apostles or someone approved by the apostles. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go into all of the reasons uh, why certain books uh, were chosen. But if you were here this morning, sometimes they'll talk about these other books that weren't included. And if you actually read the books, it becomes really obvious why they're not. And they're full of strange beliefs, heresies, uh, different things. Um, I believe it's the gospel, there's a gospel of Peter, one of these false books. And in this, if I remember right, it has, when Jesus uh, rises from the grave, it has a giant cross that comes out and, and talks. Uh, so just these strange, fanciful things. 
And actually, nobody believes that those were actually written by the apostles. But one thing to point out, and we mentioned this, is that if you had a Roman Catholic Bible, it would have some different books in it. Now, all of the New Testament would be exactly the same. We would completely agree on that. And for the Old Testament, everything that we believe is Scripture, they would also believe is Scripture. But they would also have a few additional books in there. And I have here just a printout. And you would notice that there's some books that are in addition that maybe you're not used to. The book of Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch. Now, these are books that we sometimes refer to as the Apocrypha. And so we don't include them in our scripture because we hold the 66 books. The Apocrypha is the name for the additional books that were included in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, but not found in the Hebrew Bible itself. Now, let me give you just quickly some of the reasons why we don't hold that those books are part of the Bible. One is that they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. They just, they don't have the same thus saith the Lord type quality that they're even claiming for themselves. Some of them were just written as history. Uh, the book of First and Second Maccabees were recording some of these wars that took place in between the time of the, the 400 years when the Old Testament finished and when we had the New Testament. Also, the Apocrypha, and in the Catholic Bible, it might be listed as deuterocanonical, means second canon. They were also, they were rejected by the ancient Jews. There's no record that Jesus had any debate with Jewish leaders about the extent of these. Um, they don't, even in some of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and ancient documents, they don't contain commentaries on these like the Old Testament uh, there's a Jewish council in AD 50 that officially rejected them. So the, the Jews themselves, they didn't believe these were officially scripture either. And one uh, Jewish historian, Josephus, says that after Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel. But I think here's a real major argument, is that Jesus and the New Testament authors, they quote from the Old Testament all over the place in the New Testament. They quote from Old Testament scripture over 295 times, but not once do they quote from these books of the Apocrypha. And so to me, that's a pretty weighty thing. And at the time of the New Testament, there's no evidence that anyone considered them to be inspired works. So there's more reasons as well, too. There are errors uh, in them. And so that's part of the reason why we don't hold uh, to the, uh, the books of the, the Apocrypha. So some of the application for this, one is we don't need to add to Scripture. We believe that is, what we have here is sufficient, it's final. And I, I bet that there's not too many of us, I don't think there's any of us here, okay, that would say, well, I've just mastered all of this. And I need some, give me something new because I've just run out of stuff to learn from this Bible. I think there's probably uh, very many pages in here that haven't seen uh, the light of day in a long time. God has given us plenty and it is for us. God has given us all we need. My advice on this too is to disregard some of these books that claim to give more knowledge. Books on trips to heaven, special messages, secret wisdom. Don't be fascinated by, by the novel and the new. Instead, appreciate what God has given us in Scripture. Read it. Read it and meditate on it. And appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit is with us to illuminate the truth that he had written down for us long ago. He comes to make it alive and show us how it applies to us today. And last point is that the scriptures are our supreme standard. They are our authority. And I see this in our doctrinal statement as well too when it says that the true center of Christian union and it's the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions 
should be tried. So Scripture, it is inspired, and that makes it different. And Scripture is over everything else. You have to ask yourself, are, are we, do we think that we're over Scripture and we can judge it? Or is Scripture over us and it judges us? It tells us what to think. The Bible is over us as a church. We submit ourselves. We want to submit ourselves to Scripture. And the Bible is over us as individuals. That if the Bible rubs us the wrong way, as the old preacher said, if the Bible rubs you the wrong way, turn the cat around. Because it's us that is wrong. I want to kind of make this real clear. I have two tables here. And I want to have one, we're going to have this label here of inspired. And so what is really inspired by God and has this authority and others that's not inspired, okay? And I have a box of books here and we're, you're going to help me determine which should go on the inspired and which should go on the not inspired table. And some of those, these might be a little bit easier than others. Okay, so the first I have is a book of Mormon. Okay? So how many, how many want to vote for the inspired? If you're a Mormon here, you would, you would think so, but that's where we would differ from you. Okay, so we don't believe that this is inspired, so we put the Book of Mormon on the, the not inspired. I have here a Quran. One of you, this is inspired. It's equal with, with Scripture or not inspired. Yeah, we don't believe that this is the Word of God. We do not believe it is inspired. Now, how about this one? This is a Christian book. Um, the boy who came back from heaven tells about a, a boy that died. He went to heaven and he came back. So this is a good Christian book. Should we, we should put this here? Truth? No? What? You know what? Actually, um, the boy that wrote this wrote a retraction and admitted later on he made up everything. And in his retraction, he actually said, I'm sorry about this. He said, you shouldn't be getting your information from books like this. You should be looking at scripture. It tells you everything you need. And those paragraphs that he wrote in his retraction were more valuable than anything in here. So <clears throat> that is also not the word of not inspired. How about this one? This is a Bible. This is a ESV translation. So we say um, not inspired, inspired. Who would like to vote for inspired for this one? Authoritative? Good, good. You're right choice. We'll, we'll have that there. All right, we got one thing on here. Let's see if we can get this evened out a little bit more. We have a, ba- a theology book, some good theology. I could have all kinds of different ones. This one happens to be Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. A lot of good truth in here. So it, does, it goes on this table? Is it? No? It goes, but this has bad books on it. It's still, okay. But we're not saying good, or, we're just saying inspired, authoritative, not inspired. Okay? It gets to, it gets to go over here. Now, how about this one? Seven Reasons You Can Trust the Bible. This is a good book. Erwin Lutzer, I like him. It's about trusting the Bible. So this would be here. No, this is a human author too. By the way, this is on our, if you go to the end of the booklet here, we have some recommended reading, things that you can look at to, to dig into deeper to some of these. It's a recommended resource. I like this book, but it is also, um, it's not inspired. All right. <laughs> the Shack. What do you think of it? This has sold millions of copies. This person had this, this great, I don't know if it was vision or something, about um, meeting in a shack with three people that represented the Trinity, and uh, they're making a movie out of it. Probably a lot of Christians will see this. Actually, I do not recommend this. There is a lot of erroneous theology in here. I would not recommend seeing the movie, even though it might look, it might have big stars in it and different things. And so I'm just going to tell you that we're going to put it over here. <laughs> now, how about this one? All right. Okay. This is going to hurt Pastor Nick. Okay. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> You're kind of in the middle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... 
So it goes over, this is a Christian classic. This is a great book, Puritan author. Oh, it hurts you to have to put it over here. So we'll, we'll kind of push this stuff over a little bit and kind of, kind of buffer it a little bit. So I just want to make the point, Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Oh, it pains me, but now how about this? This is a book of creeds and confessions of the church. So you have everything from um, Reformed, Baptist, early creeds, uh, Creed of Nicaea. These are things, some of these we should all believe. We should believe the Nicene Creed. It's good, super helpful stuff. We're, we'd be in a bad idea to ignore some of this, but this it go, it goes over here. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> Even in this, some of these are going to contradict each other. They can't all be right. Some are better than others. Some are helpful. But, and don't get me wrong. There's some people that say, well, it's just the Bible and all of this is worthless. That's not what I'm saying here. It's foolish to not learn from people that have gone ahead of us, but to recognize that it's not Scripture. I just have two more because we want to make this really clear. This is a sermon CD by me. <laughs> so what? Oh, yeah, okay. And just to make it clear, our church's doctrinal statement. Now, if we split it, we could have the Scripture pages and put them over here. But the actual things, you know, we, we like it. We think this is what we believe. But the point I'm trying to make is that Scripture alone is our authority. All this other stuff is only useful as much as it matches up to this one inspired text that God has given us. Some of this is worthless. Some of this is very valuable. But this is the only thing that really has authority for us as a church and in our lives. That Scripture is the word of God. It's greater than our feelings, our opinions, church traditions, councils, leaders, human laws, the prevailing wisdom of the ages. Everything is underneath what God has given us in Scripture. It is our final authority. Scripture alone. Therefore, all of Scripture is God's authority. What He says, he, what it says He says, it's not optional advice. God never says, hey, this is just my opinion. Take it or leave it. I'm fine either way. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And when God speaks, we need to listen and believe and obey. He's our Lord. He's our authority. He speaks to us through Scripture. And that's why this is the first article in our statement of faith, admitting the fact that everything that we believe is to be judged by this book. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. Thank you, Lord God, that has revealed truth to us. That you've spoken to us through Scripture, Lord. And that we have sure teaching from you because you've recorded this. Help us to believe this. Help us to trust it. And help us to obey and change our thoughts in our lives to match what you have given us in Scripture. We submit ourselves to your authority. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.